Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. And our correspondent, Allison Trowbridge. Hey, Don. Allie's on the show today because she has an interview, a second interview. It's the second interview of this podcast. There's two of them. With Jason Russell. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. I think he's one of the world's great filmmaker narrative minds. Do you agree with that? He really is. Yeah. But one of the things that Jason is in the midst of is overcoming a public, I don't know, humiliation? What would you call it? How would you classify it? What does he call it? I mean, Jason's incredible because he built the most viral campaign in the world, hit the greatest mountaintops of success, and then went through a really public kind of crash and burn. And the way that he has come back and and been resilient and navigated that. It is one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. He has zero pride. And we should say, he gets into it, there's no scandal, there's no drugs, there's no inappropriate behavior. He just was completely and totally exhausted and had a bit of a mental break and they caught it on film. Yeah, and the way that he's come back from that, I actually, talking to him, I'm like, I feel like he's just getting started. I think he has even bigger things I feel the exact same way about him. He just recovered and got back up so freaking fast. It made me wonder, because that's the story question of this episode, is what's it really costing you to not get back up? I mean, when you have something happen, and none of us have had, thankfully, anything as tough as what... Or as public. Or as public as what Jason has had, especially in this day and age. Yeah. But what about you guys? I mean, what was a time when you when it just took you a minute to get back up? I'll say for me, mine was actually a physical one. So I went snowboarding in Switzerland of all places, which was the first bad idea. And <laughs> I'm terrible and not coordinated and got going really fast and lost control. And I broke my arm in what's called a burst fracture, which the surgeon That just sounds awful. Yeah, it felt even worse than it sounds. And I think the surgeon called it a freak accident. So it's kind of like when he goes and speaks about terrible breaks and how incredible he is, he uses my story as an example of how bad my... (laughs) How bad it can be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The Swiss doctors were like, it is very bad. Get back very quickly. Didn't they give you some aspirin and put you on an airplane? Yeah, it was horrifying. It was the worst experience of my life. And the recovery was about a year. I still will never have like full use of my arm in the way I used to. It's It was wild. And even worse, I think, than the physical pain is just the emotional trauma of your life being completely sidelined. And this happened while I was mid-move to New York. So I had all of my life in a storage unit in New Jersey, and I literally had no home, nowhere to go, no idea where, like, how to begin the recovery process. It was bad. It was really bad. And you're such an ambitious person. I would think for you, that would be especially hard because you're not able to continue putting something on the plot, as it were. Oh, completely. You know, get up every day and meet with somebody and get this project done and those kinds of things because you're just, you're laid out. Yeah, I couldn't even type for three months. I couldn't even dress myself. It was, it throws your life upside down and reframes how you see even just your identity as a person who contributes to the world. Ali, looking back, what's the benefit of that season now? How are you reaping the benefits of having to go through that? I had a few moments during it where I wished that I was the more spiritually evolved person that could be (laughs) grateful for it as I was going through it. I was not grateful. (laughs) But, you know, the gift of it was empathy. 
full stop. Hmm. I think unless you go through that season of life and have that kind of traumatic flip your world upside down, there's no way that you have that depth of empathy and understanding for other people when they hit those crashes. And I would never go back to it, but I also wouldn't trade it for the world because I think it gave me, you know, such a greater love and understanding for other people through hard things. That's beautiful. I remember when I was younger reading the story of Joseph in the Bible, and he becomes the second most powerful person in the world at the time. And he had this whole program to feed the poor, this like seven-year program. And I remember thinking, if he hadn't been thrown in a well, would he? He probably wouldn't have that kind of empathy. Yeah. It's so easy to look back on yeah, exactly. Yeah, the you moment. can look back. What was look. your like? What was well, the hard season I mean, for you? Man, there have been some pretty emotionally. I went through some emotional darkness and hard times where, you know, we've talked about depression on here before. That for me, depression was not like this, where I was always sad. It was just kind of there was always this gray, this this, this feudalism gray. and nihilism. Yeah, it was just around. like it felt like the, the it was sunny outside, but the shades were drawn, oh, and yeah. that kind of like thing and. And you just kind of go through a season of that where it's not like I was so like sad, sad all the time. It was just I didn't have a lot of motivation and I didn't have a lot of movement forward in my life because it didn't feel like I could in a lot of ways. One thing kind of that I ended up doing that helped both emotionally and ultimately physically was I decided at one point to run a half marathon Hmm. And I decided to run it really without training. Oh, and that's I, bold. I, I, am, I am. And again, people on the podcast can't really see my body type, but it's not a marathon runners. And I remember going, I'm going to do this. And so I, it was the Disney half marathon in Southern California. So I was freaked out. They told us that if we didn't run fast enough, a bus would pick us up behind. So I was <laughs> yeah, like, I was like you. trying, I was going to run. Picks you up. Yeah. Like, cause you, they down. had to shut the streets down. So I'm running through Disneyland and people are taking pictures with the animals and the characters. I'm like, get out of my way. The bus is coming. And, I, and I'm and i doing pretty good, like jogging, walking for about the first six miles. And I get to mile seven, and now I'm walking more than jogging. And I get to mile about 11, and all I can do is walk. Like I can't. I'm, I'm just done running. I have a couple more miles to go. And I here behind me, the tapping of a cane of a blind person who is coming up behind me and catching me in the race. And I would go, oh, I can't get beat by a blind person walking. And so I start to take off running and my legs stop working and I fall down and I hit the ground. Please oh. tell me the blind person picked you up and carried no. you across the finish line. No, but please, the, please, please. the half marathon is lined with like people cheering you on and it was right in front of a whole bunch of junior high cheerleaders who were there with their squad like cheering. And so they're like, you could do it, get up. And I'm wanting to hit them so hard. <laughs> And the blind person passes me with the stick and I'm laying on the ground going, I don't know if my legs are going to carry me the rest of the way. And I also can't just lay here in front of these junior high girls. Yeah, you have and to so inspire them I have them to inspire them. <laughs> they, their life needs to be changed. So I get up and I end up finishing the race. I walked almost all the rest of it. But I have looked back on that moment of, of, again, I don't know if I will ever do it again. But I've looked back on that moment and gone, 
I know I can do hard things. Did you do it because you thought I need to snap myself out of this downward little spiral? Bit. I need something different That's to happen. That's a smart move. I need something to change where I'm at and what I'm feeling. And I want to do something that I probably shouldn't be able to do. And so I, I love did it. it. Even now, like when I'm going through really hard things. You go run a half I, marathon. No, <laughs> no, I did not. But I look back on that moment and I go, I ran a half marathon. I can do this. And um, there you go. I couldn't walk for about a week after, but I did it. But you finished it. Yeah. That's inspiring. I think this is one of the biggest lessons to learn in life is about getting back up. And I think if you look at the difference between people who you know, really have super, super high impact and people who don't, and I don't mean to be judgmental, but it's a reality, right? They're not worth any less in the eyes of God. Yeah. But some people have impact and some people don't. Even around just close friends in small circles. And the difference is they get back up because everybody is going to get hit. Everybody's going to get tackled. If you watch a football game, that running back gets tackled over and over and over. Yeah. But you win the game because you don't lay there and you get back up and you get hit again. Getting hit is life. Yeah. It's just part of life. But it's so hard to learn the first time. I think that should be the title of this podcast, Getting Hit is Life. Getting Hit is Life. <laughs> I don't know. It just, you know, I mean, there's things I don't want to happen. I, I didn't go bankrupt once, but I lost all my money. And I've told that story in the podcast before. That was one of the greatest days of my life looking back because it made me get back up. Yeah. You know, and then there was some other stuff, just some, I think I wrote about in Scary Close, some relational stuff that was just devastating. And you get back up. Yeah. And if you know if you just keep your legs moving forward. Yeah. I think it's 90% of the recipe for success. Yeah. So true. And there will be a crowd of junior high cheerleaders cheering for you. Yeah. That would be helpful. That <laughs> would be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> just, just standing around saying eat that breakfast. Let's go. <laughs> Get to the pool. <laughs> anyway, we got two interviews. One with Bonnie St. John. I heard Bonnie St. John give a speech in where were we, Tim? We were in Arizona. We were at some retreat in Arizona, Tucson. And Bonnie St. John got up and gave a speech, and I turned to Tim and said, we got to get her on the show. She's fantastic. We had her on before. If you want to go back and look at old episodes, we have a whole episode with Bonnie St. John, but we got another clip from her, because who better to talk about getting back up than her? Yeah. And you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about when you hear this clip. And then Allie was kind enough to go sit with Jason Russell, who could have talked about a ton of things. This guy has been a major influence on legislation in Congress to go get this guy, Joseph Coney, who's killed untold numbers of people, many of them children in Africa. And a lot of the special forces stuff that takes place in the United States government happened because of one dude, Jason Russell, who made a film, mobilized a group of people and said, here's a bad guy, let's go get him. And had a mental health breakdown that I think millions and millions of people have had. His just got caught on film and has rebounded from that to be one of the most inspirational human beings I've ever met. I was a little jealous, Allie, when you got to talk I to know. him. I know. Could, I could have easily talked to him. You, know, could, <laughs> you can talk to him, talk him next, him. next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm getting back up. I'm getting back up from getting hit, as we would say, by Allie Trowbridge <laughs> from the side. <laughs> Horse collar tackle. Mm, classic Allie. <laughs> classic Allie. Anyway, Allie, thanks for doing that. And special thanks, of course, to Bonnie St. John and Jason Russell, just two wonderful human beings who've experienced harder things than most of us will ever experience and have gotten back up and as such are really inspirational. If you have ever gone through something really hard and it's named you, it's labeled you, you still feel it weighing you down. This episode is for you. You've got to get back up. There are way too many people depending on you. It's not about you. It's about the people around you. You've got to get back up for their sake. Hopefully this will be inspirational. Let's get into the interviews. Here's my conversation with Bonnie St. John. 
Bonnie, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be back. You've been on our podcast before, but you're known as somebody who really understands resilience and how to keep going. And I think you understood it in a primitive way before you started understanding it in a scientific way. You were just the person who kept going and going and going. So much so that you were featured, a quote of yours was featured on a Starbucks cup. I was hoping that you could tell us about that. Sure. I was in the Olympics. I was on the U.S. team. And when I was selected, I was the third ranked one-legged woman in the United States, which was good because they only took three one-legged women (laughs) on the team. So after years of training and breaking my leg and moving away from home, I was so happy just to be on the team and to have my team jacket and to be representing the United States of America. That was my dream. I went to Innsbruck, Austria, and my mother went with me. It was the first time, actually, that my mother actually saw me in a ski race. I grew up in San Diego. There's, you know, no race, no ski races there. We didn't have a lot of money, so it wasn't like she could pick herself up and and travel around with me when I was skiing. So when she went with me, it was the first time she ever saw me. Uh, The other thing I have to say is is my mom was the kind of person who doesn't get it about sports. You know, she... She would see a jogger going down the street and say, can't they do something constructive with their energy? (laughs) So here she is. She's watched me take time off from college and be a ski bum and all that. And here we are going to the Olympics and all the hoopla, all the countries represented, all the excitement. You know, she's starting to get the idea. This is pretty cool. And then I go down the first run of the slalom. And when the dust clears and the times are posted, my time is number one in the world. So it's an upset. You know, if you're the third ranked woman, nobody expects you to beat your teammates, never mind anyone else. You know, so I had trained harder. I had trained on a glacier over summer and I was in the number one spot. My mother went berserk. She was so excited. It was like, uh, you know, jogging, I don't get, but winning. I like this. This is good. (laughs) (laughs) So. But it takes two runs to win. So I went back up to the top to wait my turn. And it's never the same course. You know, they set a new course. And I am waiting my turn. And other women go down. And I'm hearing that they're crashing. Uh, There's a dangerous icy spot on this course. So I'm thinking, no heroics. If I just stay standing, I could win the gold. So I get in the starting gate. The race official says, three, two, one, go. You know, and I'm hitting the red and the blue poles. I see the finish line. I think, I'm going to win. And that's when I hit the bad spot. Mm. I ski on one leg. I actually only ski on one ski. And I tried to hold on to my edge. I couldn't do it. And I fell down. I was so disappointed. I just wanted to disappear. But my mm. training, my reflexes were to always finish the race. I grabbed my equipment. I got over the finish line. And when the dust cleared, I was still in third place. So I got to stand on the winner's podium, get the bronze medal around my neck and my mother crying in the snow. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten up. If I thought, oh, you know, I lost, game over, you know, and gave up, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to win the medal. Now, I went on to win bronze in the giant slalom and then seventh in the downhill, the downhill, you, you know, where you yeah. barely turn, you go 65, yeah. 70 miles an hour. For overall performance, I was given the silver medal as the second fastest woman in the world on one leg. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten up and finished that race. Yeah. Now, the woman who won that race, she also fell in the second run. She didn't win because she didn't fall. I was the better skier than her when nothing went wrong. I was the best long skier in the world. So she beat me by being the quicker getter-upper. Wow. She beat me not by being a better skier, but being better at getting up. So the quote on the Starbucks cup is people fall down, winners get up, but sometimes the gold medal winner is just the person who gets up the fastest. I love that. Oh, Bonnie, thanks so much for telling us that story. You're welcome. And it's it's just 
in today's economy, it really is about resilience. Rosabeth Moss Cantor says resilience is the meta skill. We all have technical skills and strategic skills, but resilience makes all of those skills show up stronger and better. Oh, I absolutely believe it. Bonnie, thanks for the encouragement and inspiration. Thank you. Take care. Hey, everybody. As you know, StoryBrand is a company that helps people clarify their message, which sounds like this kind of elusive thing. We help you clarify your message. But here's the reality. Every day, people buy products that are inferior in the market. They literally choose products that are not as good as other products. And the reason they do that, which is a completely irrational thing to do, the reason they do that is because the company that's selling the inferior product messaged their product better. And all of us have probably been beat by some competitor who didn't sell as good of a product, but I guarantee you the reason they outsold you is they messaged their product better. People buy things because they read or hear words that make them want to buy things. The key is in the words that we use. If you don't have a message strategy, if you don't have a message framework for your product or your company, I've got a tool that will help. Go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, watch three five-minute videos, approximately five minutes, and I'm going to blow your mind because you're going to realize, oh my word, I have been talking about my products the wrong way. Then you're going to be able to fix the wording that you use to talk about your product and you're going to sell more of it. And here's the great thing. Words are free. You just take a napkin and a pen and you write down words and they don't cost you anything. Neither will this film series. Go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. And finally, come up with the messages that you can use and repeat to sell your product. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Now let's go to Allie's interview with Jason Russell. Jason. Hi. It's so good to have you on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. You have been one of the interviews I have honestly been the most excited about because you're one of my all-time favorite people, a personal hero. I just am your number one fan. Well, I feel the same way. I mean, with you and Dawn and anyone at StoryBrand, I love you guys. I love everyone there. I've been there since the beginning. I think I was a yeah. part of the very first StoryBrand were session. you really? Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. But it's neat because, gosh, when I, so I worked for most of my 20s in the anti-slavery movement, but when I was a sophomore in college, a couple young guys came to, to Westmont where I went to school and screened this film called Invisible Children, and it kind of lit a fire amongst the just the students on campus and we started clubs and we started all these events. And I don't know, until that point, I don't think anyone really talked about social justice. And it's such a funny thing to say that looking back now, but it, the work that you guys did really shifted the way I think our generation thought about our work and our purpose and the way we can make an impact. So if you could just, for the 0.04% of listeners who haven't heard of Invisible Children, give us a quick history lesson on it. What was that organization and what did you do? Yeah, it was really just birthed out of my desire to A, go on an adventure mm. and B, to find a story that no one was really talking about or covering. And at the time, like you said, 2001, I'm graduating film school at USC and I was ready to go make big Hollywood movies. 
musicals specifically because that was my background. Mm. And I couldn't get anyone to go with me to South Sudan where like I was reading reports that two million Sudanese had been slaughtered in a genocide. Yeah. And I was like, wait, this is happening right now. Like we're studying the Holocaust, which happened decades ago. Why aren't we talking about a Holocaust right now? Hmm. And so again, my heart wanted to make Hollywood musicals and that's what I was trained to go and do. But then my heart was divided because I was like, I want to go document a genocide hmm. as well. And so I scrapped some money together through friends and family and I convinced this guy Bobby and Laren to go with me and make the movie. And honestly, our whole intention was capture the footage. If we have time, cut it together and then go on with our lives. Like, yeah. you know, maybe go to a festival or something. That would be cool. We yeah. didn't really know what would come of it. And I should say that we actually became such good friends with these children in northern Uganda, which is like right below Sudan. So we went to Sudan and we didn't get the story we wanted. We were kind mm. of bummed. We ended up in northern Uganda because Sudanese refugees flee to northern Uganda because of the war. And we just fell in love with these kids who were running for their lives. Like mm. they were just bright and smart and, you know, we became friends with them. And they and the community said, please tell everyone you know that like we're being abducted, we're being kidnapped, we need help. And this has been going on for 17 years. We made a short film and that film didn't get accepted to Sundance. We no. got denied. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the day Laren and I got the news, like <laughs> you are not going to be in Sundance Film Festival. It's a very strange movie. I mean, some people listening might have seen the movie back in the day, but it's like 55 minutes, so it's an awkward length. We at the beginning are throwing up, lighting things on fire, cutting a snake in half. It's like, <laughs> and then it turns into this like emotional heart, like throbbing story of these kids. Mm. And so we were bummed that we didn't get into the festivals, but it kind of pissed us off too. We were like, <laughs> we want we want people to see our movie. We worked hard on it. So we basically shared it with anyone that would watch. And we decided the best way to do that would be to get into high schools, universities, and places of worship. And we would just have free screenings. And that started to snowball. And wow. more and more people who saw it kept asking, what can we do? How can we be a part of helping? And we're like, we are not starting a nonprofit. Mm. I told the guys, no way. <laughs> really? It's too oh, no. Really? Oh, I, I did not want to at all because my parents had started a nonprofit. Oh, That's wow. like what they do. And I was like, no, there's no money in nonprofit. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there's no profit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we tried to partner with big organizations who worked in the area. We mm. met with them and they said, we will not take any money from you. We can't be associated with you. You guys are too risky and radical. No way. We called up Jolie, our Ugandan advocate and mother and mentor. And she said, I'll do it. I'll start it. Let's go. We can have full control and make it happen. We got a board and we started a nonprofit. And out of that nonprofit became like a movement that some people have called the largest millennial movement to date in terms wow. of... Yeah, we never predicted that. It was yeah. that was never the intention. Yeah. We're just filmmakers. But the beauty behind Invisible Children is that it was always listening and unafraid to 
be innovative. Hmm. Like we were constantly saying like, what else can we do to actually bring this conflict to an end? Hmm. That was truly the heart. If you entered our offices, like that's what everyone was there doing, staying up late, building campaigns, doing the tours, the radio networks, all of it was about how do we stop this violence? I feel like so many businesses, so many movements today are, everyone's trying to figure out how to speak to millennials and how do you engage millennials? What was it about what you guys were doing that had such a a deep resonant effect? Because I mean, there were marches, there were, I mean, overnights in the streets. I mean, you engaged people like no other nonprofit I've ever seen. Yeah, there's this Sprite commercial (laughs) that came out back in the day. I think it was the 90s. Basically, the commercial said, if you drink Sprite, you'll run faster, you'll jump higher, and you'll do all these extraordinary things as an athlete. Which is true. Yeah, it's so true. But (laughs) it was like the first time in advertising, as I understand it, in which the company, the brand, was winking at the audience. They were like, yeah, we know that you know that Sprite doesn't do that. It's just sugar and bubbly water. Yeah. Come on. So to me, that's an example of authenticity. Yeah. Like we're just soda, but we're going to pretend that we're more. And because we're playing with you like that, then you're going to want to like follow us or at least be like, okay, at least they know that they're just a soda. I think that was our approach is like speaking to the teenagers we were, and we weren't far removed, you know, like 19, 21, 23. So we were speaking to our high school selves Hmm. as to like what we would want Hmm. what's what would be cool to us like what kind of movement or film would we want to see and it was based out of that like stop trying to pretend and people throw around the word authenticity all the time it's almost like bankrupt but like if you're being authentic you're going to bring your audience with you even when you're down Hmm. even when you're struggling even when you're taking that risk you're like yep we're putting ourselves out there and i i believe that it was that approach as well as being incredibly invitational and inclusive of the audience. Yeah. Like this is your organization, you know, in all the big business decisions or even board meetings and stuff, we would always have young people there. The interns would be sitting right alongside of us. And we're like, what do you think? Yeah. The reason why it matters to us is because you built this organization. You fundraised the money. It's yours. Yeah. You know, and we really operated in that way. Pretty egalitarian, you know, mm. and I think that was made us successful in that way, speaking to millennials, because millennials know when you're trying to target them. Hmm. You know, they're like, they they get it. They're right, so right, savvy. Right, They've right. been indoctrinated with all this advertising and messaging and commercials and campaign their whole lives. So they're pretty good at seeing straight through that. And what they're really sniffing out is who is just going to be real. Hmm. And I feel that for the most part, Invisible Children was real. Yeah. You made your supporters the heroes. They are the heroes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you look at all of our media, like from the bracelet films to any of the movies, it was about the young people who supported it who we eventually brought to Uganda, who eventually became close friends with the survivors and victims of the conflict. Like, we just told the truth. You know, this is Brittany Dion. This is Amanda. This is Ty. Like, these are real people. They were sitting watching the movie like you are a year ago, and now you're hearing their story. Yeah. It wasn't hard to make them the heroes because they truly were and Mm. are, you know, on both sides, not just like the Western youth. It's the girls who were abducted as child sex slaves who are now 
making handbags and putting their names in it and bought a farm and are raising their kids like they're heroes to us and we wanted to tell those stories over and over again what was your kind of mountaintop moment like just through the course of the organization when do you feel like you were on the highest high there are two that come to mind but i'll tell one which is this event that we had our first big event was called the global night commute it was in 2006 and it was so epic because we didn't know if people were going to show up and over 80,000 people did wow. like around the world wow. this is during the myspace days wow so we were blown away by the willingness of people to sacrifice and sleep in the streets for a conflict that was 6,000 miles away like we were like really or 9,000 miles i don't know it's a long way <laughs> but long way, long way. <laughs> And then we did another event called Displace Me the next year, and that was equally as epic. 15 displacement camps across the nation. Stories of victims of displacement were being projected on these giant blow-up screens. It was like such a cool, moving event. People were like fasting, you know, and acting as though they didn't have a home just for one night to like imagine what that would be like. Mm. And so at that point, we were like, we just threw two amazing events. We can never top it. But we went all in on this event called The Rescue. And basically, participants of the event had to go to their city center. And this was the first time we really went international. So it was in like, I don't know, 10 or 15 countries around the world. And they couldn't leave their city center until an uh, influencer, like a politician or an A-list celebrity, and the media oh showed up gosh. to cover the event. It was like That's a hostage incredible. situation. Yeah, so we were like... Go to your city center, and there's a lot of buildup before you have to ask your congressman or senator yeah. or like any A-list celebrity to come. And we did it, and we really went all in. But nine days before the event, we decided if they don't get the media or an influencer out there, then they're going to stay there <laughs> oh for gosh. days. Like the event was on Saturday, wow. and we're like, just stay there. If you get rescued, you can either go home or you can go to the next city that needs to be rescued. Wow. So it was like an all-in, like chips are all-in, like this could be wildly embarrassing for invisible children. Wow. So long story short, we all end up seven days in, going from city to city in buses and vans and caravans. People are flying from Australia and London all over flying to come to the city that needs to be rescued. It ended up being Chicago. There were about a thousand of us in the streets sleeping and we were waiting out for Obama, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> we would take the vice president or oh Oprah Winfrey because it's her, it's her town, Chicago. So we went to the studio and we did this protest where we sang this song to her staff outside and no one came out. <laughs> and our, the leaders at Invisible Children were like, what do we do? We were like, what do we do? So we slept at this church like for another night. And then we got up at four in the morning and we went back. Oh and we surrounded her entire city block. It's like a studio in Chicago. We surrounded the whole thing with like protesters. She drove in. You saw her car. This black suburban drove in. She walked straight out of the building 10 minutes later, said, what can I do? Wow. She invited us up to her office. We said, we just want your attention. Like that's all. We, we want you to go on camera and we'll film it. And you just read this poem. And she's like, you just want me to read a poem? Why don't you go on live in an hour oh my on my gosh. show? I'll give you the first two minutes. So she gave us the first 10 minutes. Wow. And it like she rearranged the show within an hour. It was live. And that moment not only was historic for Congress because 
45 senators or something signed on to the bill that we were trying to pass wow. because it was on Oprah Winfrey. And she said, this is important. Tweet about it. Do it. But it changed the minds of at least a thousand young people hmm. around that building to say anything is possible. Hmm. It was like um, people got tattoos of the rescue really? because they were like, this is I'll never be a part of something. Oh, that gives me chills. That's <laughs> crazy. Like, it was so beyond that an icon like Oprah would walk out of a studio and then an hour later we're there live. It was amazing. And then two years later she gave us $2 million. I didn't know that piece of it. Yeah. Well, it, no one knows really. And now they do. Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah. So two years later we went back on um, for another event called 25. And during the commercial break, she said, how much do you need? And Laren said $2 million. And she said, I'm going to give you that money right now. What? Then she went on, the, the cameras rolled and she goes, everybody give $25 who's watching. And we raised one8 from her audience. So oh she's such gosh. a smart businesswoman. She knew that if the audience knew that she was going to give the they 2 million, they wouldn't give. Oh, oh. Cuz Oprah's going to cover it. She's rich. So we actually in 1 hour got 4.8 or 3.8, yeah. Which that set us up to make Kony 2012. Oh my god. Yeah, gosh. so no one knows that backstory, but I don't think Oprah does either, but she was instrumental in giving us the freedom to create a giant campaign. Wow. Like and and now for anybody who's just wondered, how do I get on Oprah? Yeah. Now, now you know, you surround the building. You surround you the building. surround the building. Girl has to get in the building. <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> she, on. She's, she's not going underground. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> no, so that was like a pinnacle because yeah. it was like, we went from devastation the night before. I remember we were going to bed at like 2.30 in the morning in a van and all of us leaders were like, what have we done? Yeah. Like the stakes are so high. We're waiting for the president or Oprah. This is the only thing we'll accept. <laughs> like, who are we? <laughs> but we then just, to have it pay off beautifully. I mean, wow. we didn't even know it was going to be a live show. Like all those kind of wow. coincidental things. That to me was like blow your mind pinnacle. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So Coney 2012. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. I remember when it came out and just the shockwaves that it sent. Also, just from an artistic standpoint, it was a beautifully done film. Thank you. Yeah, it still holds up if yeah. you watch it. Like, it still moves you. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And at the point when it came out, it was named the most viral video of all time. Yeah, so I think it's still the most viral like movie of yeah. all time. I think that there's been a music video by Psy, Gangnam Style, <laughs> and then I think no, that, I think Psy that Chewbacca doesn't. Mom might have might have trumped <laughs> it in terms of of being viral. But in terms of like a movie yeah. that has gone viral, I think it's still the number one. Yeah. So what was the thinking behind it when you guys went to make the film? The thinking behind it. For I'll do me personally yeah. and then the company. So for me personally, it was that I was angry at having to make another movie because we had made 10 other films before. And you it made had 10? Been 10, yeah. Whoa. And we had toured them and okay. we you know, gone to Congress and we passed bills through Congress. We were doing, Ben said, Ben Kesey is the CEO. He said, you need to make another movie. And this was right after we made a movie called Tony, which I think is like the best movie we've made. Mm. So imagine like mm -hmm. working on something so hard and pushing 
and all the good storytelling is in there. Yeah. And then six months later, you need to make another one and it needs to be better than that one. Right. Because the issue that you are up against is still... The main thing was that we had passed two bills through Congress and we were in the Oval Office when Obama signed them. And they were historic bills because never in United States history have bills passed in which it mandated that the United States actually send the military and they were there to embed themselves in the Ugandan government, the UPDF, Mm. but also working with the African Union and the United Nations to come up with a comprehensive plan to remove Joseph Kony and the top commanders from the battlefield. So I didn't think the bills would pass. They did. Obama signed them. But that night, you know, over martinis, I'm like, it's never going to happen. But then on my birthday, 2011, October 12th, 2011, Obama sent the troops. I remember being in a Starbucks and seeing the cover of the New York Times saying that and just being like, just floored. Yeah. And they were there as advisors. Yeah. So it wasn't like we were invading or we were like dropping like bombs. Of course. It was like they're coming in as advisors because of our expertise in military. And so I was floored. I was like, wait, they're really there. And then Ben said, but they won't stay there unless there's pressure from the United States citizens. And then that's where the Coney 2012 idea came. Uh, Michael Poffenberger, who did so much policy and Washington DC work, said the main problem that I have when I meet with senators and congressmen's offices is that Joseph Coney is not famous. I wish that he was famous, then it would be easy. And in the moment I heard that in the hallway, oh yeah. (laughs) It was like lightning struck. Oh it struck me. Like I saw it. I saw the vision. In that moment, I told Ben Kesey, that's what we're going to do. I just thought of like Andy Warhol and I thought of Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe and all these kind of icons that you know are so famous. I said, let's do that with a warlord. Whoa. Like how cool would that be? And fortunately, it was an election season. So we got to embed 2012 into the zeitgeist of politics where people are always seeing the candidate next to the number. Right. And so to have Coney, a warlord next to like a presidential year was massive for us. Yeah. Um, But we didn't know if it would work. So you made this film. How did you, how did you make it go viral? We made it go viral because for 10 years we sent out young people who volunteered their time They're called roadies, Mm -hmm. and they gave up a semester of their life or school, and they would do screenings. And over the course of nine years, we did over 15,000 screenings to a direct audience of 5 million young people. Oh, my gosh. So 5 million young people had a face-to-face interaction with a roadie or a Ugandan who survived the conflict. Wow. So it was very personal. So I always have to try to paint that as the background because without that kindling to the fire, it would have never gone viral. Yeah. I feel as though those 5 million young people who felt invested in the cause, when Coney 2012 came out, they were like, finally. Yeah. Like now we're going, now it's time to go full force. Yeah. And so with that as a base, and then like Kristen Bell was incredibly influential. She hosted the screening in LA and her advocacy and tweets over the years had helped, but this was like major because she had an audience. And honestly, I think that the way we baked the campaign, the the way that 
the dominoes were lined up for the campaign was incredibly strategic. Mm. Like we had learned over the years, okay, this works, this doesn't, this works, this doesn't. Mm. And so we were all working as a unit. And I think there's an MIT study on Kony 2012 because they studied like all these hyper success situations or scenarios. And the one thing that all these hyper success things had in common was the team was focused on one goal. Hmm. And our only goal for that campaign was to make Kony famous. So when you have that singularity of a goal, you have that singular vision of a goal, then it becomes freeing. It's yeah. so clear. I think yeah. StoryBrand talks a lot about this. It's like clarity. Yeah, clarify like your message. Yeah. Like simplicity, but yeah. you know what? It's so hard to do. It's the <laughs> hardest. Thing. Yes. It's the hardest yes. thing to do. Why yeah. is it so hard? It's so hard because there's so many distractions yeah. and there's so many other things you want to throw on the table. I mean, I find myself knowing that simplicity and clarity are the key and I'm still cluttered. I'm still like, we could do this and let's do that and throw that in, you know. Yeah. People get overwhelmed, but you know, the highest form of sophistication is simplicity. Yeah. And that it just takes time. Yeah. And iteration. Yeah. And your campaign was just brilliantly simple. Well, it was simple because you're watching a movie that had social media embedded inside of it. Mm. So when you watch the film, you're watching it most likely on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And that gave you the ability to watch it be moved. And then all you have to do is share Share it. it. Right. (laughs) It's like simple. Yeah. And people call it clicktivism or activism. That's fine. That is what it is. And there's something very powerful to that. Yeah. Because it actually can move the needle on something. Of course. How are you going to be aware of anything if you don't know about it? So yeah, there's a lot of clicktivists and slacktivists, but then there's hundreds of thousands of others who go beyond that. Totally. And we need them to be a part of it as well. Totally. What did the success of that campaign lead to? Like, I mean, you got, what was it, 100 million views? Yeah, so the goal was 500,000 views okay. for the year. Okay. Which I thought was small. I was yelling at the <laughs> team like, wait, we're doing all this for 500, which is a lot. The 500 is a lot. Is a lot. It's it a lot. Was, but I wanted like 3 million we got 500,000 views in 12 hours. We got 3 million in like 36 hours. Wow. And then we had about a million hits every hour upon the hour. Wow. Yeah, so it would just grow. Like you go to sleep for, you know, a couple hours, you wake up, it would have jumped 5 million. You wow. Know? What did that feel like to see it happening? Oh, so wildly exciting. It was just an energy unlike anything. You know, I mean, I remember very vividly coming back from the office like day two. Yeah. And I went to get flowers for my wife because I think we were having an argument because this had been taking a lot of time, my time. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like midnight and I leave the Vons, the grocery store, and I look across the street in Pacific Beach, San Diego, which by the way is not necessarily like a social active justice. Right, it, no, right. It's like a beach party town. Yeah. And on the bus park are Coney 2012 posters oh that my someone gosh. had printed out and made and put it up on the bus stop. Oh my God. And I got goosebumps. I was like, what? Like this is actually, people are actually doing it. You know, I still get pictures today of people in the outskirts of Guatemala and there's a Coney 2012 bus. Oh my God. (laughs) Like seriously, so people were doing it 
and it felt like a watershed moment. Yeah. It felt like Tom Shadiak, my mentor, called and he said, people are waking up. You can feel them waking up mm. in a very real way. And that's what it felt like. It felt as though something phenomenal and extraordinary was happening. And I think the dark side of it is that people wanted to own it and mm. people wanted to confuse the messaging and people wanted to throw out, you know, lies or false truths or fake news, whatever you want to call it, in order to dilute the power of what we were about and what we had done. Why do you think there was a desire to come after the campaign? Like I remember bloggers coming out and trying to attack the campaign and it, it seems like you know, you get something that's doing such good in the world. Mm. Why Why does something doing so much good get come under attack like that? Yeah, I think it's layered. My response would be that it's kind of, it's like three things. One is that if you wrote an article about Coney 2012 during this time, you would get hundreds of thousands of readers. Mm. So it was this clickbait hmm. mentality and if you could make it divisive hmm. or controversial or get the scoop on Jason Russell is this religious fanatic who's trying to spend his evangelical white savior message, that is so provocative. Wow. So if you're someone who wants to get readers, yeah. you better write an article that is provocative and yeah. divisive. And yeah. I mean... Which I, we see so much of that today. And I'm so idealistic yeah. and like I believe the best in everyone. Like yeah, I did not too. see that coming. Yeah. But my friends and I always talk about there's always this wave of anything you talk about. Anything has glory days, three days, four days online. And then you watch people start going after it. Hmm. Whether it's, you know, Justin Bieber or whether it's politics. It's like nothing can be good for that long online mm. until the dark shadow comes out and everyone has to trash it, you know? Wow. So it's just like a part of the cycle, unfortunately. Yeah. If anything comes out and has hyper success, prepare yourself because the critics are coming hmm. and they'll take you down. Hmm. And I just remember feeling, you know, days before my breakdown, so underwater and so attacked and Ben Kesey had to keep telling me, like, you did nothing wrong. Hmm. We did nothing wrong. But it was hard for me to believe that because everyone was so upset. Yeah. You know, I couldn't figure out why are they so upset? Yeah. So it felt beautiful. And then it felt like a nightmare that I couldn't escape. Wow. I mean, I read a statistic a couple of months ago that during the 10 days after Coney 2012, all of Twitter, 60% of Twitter had a hashtag Coney2012 attached to it. 60%? Yes. So the majority of tweets coming out of, over those 10 days, oh half of Twitter was talking about. That's crazy. That's unreal. I mean, I think only Trump has like been able to match <laughs> Trumped it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was that massive. And then having everyone who in my mind was in power trying to contact you to be a part of this moment was overwhelming. Like all of Oprah's people mm. from OWN, the Weinsteins were calling, trying to buy Coney 2012. Whoa. And then they wanted to change the Oscars rules so that it could win an Oscar at Whoa. a 30 minute length. 
And I kept telling him, like, you can't buy something that's free. <laughs> like, it's actually free. It's on YouTube. But um, Ryan Seacrest wanted us on American Idol. Like, it was just all these people who wanted wow. to be a part of it. And I think they wanted to be a part of it because it was a good thing. Yeah. It was positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that kind of pressure of being the tip of the spear in the face of it felt too much for my brain to take on. And that led me to not being able to sleep and not being able to like eat regularly or not being able to decipher from reality and what was going on in my head. If you were going to sit down with yourself today as you, and you got to go back to, Mm -hmm. to Jason in the midst of all that madness, what would you say? I would say, Jason, what invisible children and, the people who love you the most need from you is to stop talking. Hmm. Like that will be the best for you and that will be the best for the organization. Like you are better if you just stop. And I don't know how long that will take, but you need to stop. Hmm. But they sent me away because they knew I wasn't doing well because I was like very emotional, like crying which Just, I don't think I don't think anyone can imagine what it feels like to have the entire eyes of the world on you at once on that high of a high and yeah. then the crushing low of people just completely coming after you for all those reasons you said. And like my ego of course was in hyper mode cuz I was had been waiting for a day like this mm. to have people care about my friends and these children and this place in the world that is neglected. And I essentially, myself and our team was saying for many years, black lives matter. Hmm. Like that's what we were saying. Black lives, they matter just as much as we do. Hmm. If Gavin, who's five years old, was abducted and forced into a rebel army in which he was trained to be a child soldier and kill his family, pretty sure that we'd find a way to stop who's ever doing that there's no excuse totally so we took that conviction and we applied it why is this allowed to go on for 17 years now it's over 30 years why are we able to sleep at night knowing that this is still going on yeah so we lived and breathed that every day people who worked at invisible children for those 10 years knew that that was why we were there and we would do whatever it took to ensure that the violence stopped. So to have the opportunity to have a megaphone or a platform yeah. to say, now we can do it, yeah. was very inviting, it was very exciting. I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah. I couldn't sleep at night because I was like, <gasps> and you know, you're, you're getting up at four in the morning to talk to the New York Times. Yeah. Like really, the New York Times is gonna put it above the fold only to find out it's not the New York Times, it's someone else who's writing a shady article. Like, there was a lot of that going on too. Yeah. So you didn't know who to trust. You thought that if you did another interview, you could get ahead of the messaging. Mm. That's not true. Hmm. You can't. That's hmm. not true because it's like feathers in a pillow. Like once the lies are out there and the wind takes them, they're there. The hmm. feathers will blow. Hmm. So... I think that's what was frustrating too, is that millions of people still just know me as the naked meltdown on the street. Very few of them, I think, have heard life after that. Yeah. And so 
that's just a strange way to navigate the world. Yeah. At least for many years it was right after because people would look at me like, oh, are you that guy? Hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Hmm. And they would be like, how are you? You know, it, I, most people are earnest and they cared. But yeah, it was wild. How did your team come around you in the days just after and your family? Yeah, I mean, so I was so out of my mind that I was handcuffed and brought to a facility for 17 days in like one corridor. I didn't know that. Yeah, so there was like wow. 20 crazy people. And I just say crazy, I mean like mentally unstable. Like okay. they're quarantined because they're a danger to themselves or others around them. Yeah. And so what's really challenging about this program that we have is putting 20 crazy people in one facility only heightens oh the crazy. Gosh. Like I was basically taking over, standing on tables, like leading a rebellion within <laughs> the facility. <laughs> It was, I mean, the, no. yeah, no, it was, it was wild. I didn't even know where I was or who I was. I thought they were trying to kill me. I wouldn't take any medication. You didn't know where you were, or who you were? No. Really? No, I mean, I think I knew who I was, but it took at least three days to even calm me down. Wow. They were like, at one point, because I wanted to escape. So I would do like Kung Fu kicks to the glass to like, shatter it in order to run because i'm oh like you're gosh. keeping us in this cage like there's an actual like smoking cage where you could go out for one hour or like for 10 minutes every hour to have your cigarette and then you're brought back in yeah so at one point there was like eight people strapping me to a metal table literally and oh and shoving syringes into me to calm me down i thought they were trying to kill me i would too yeah so it was wild and so from there, I went to a facility in L.A. for 30 days. Okay. And that's when I, I really came back to myself. Yeah. So it was hard. It was very hard. And wow. I, didn't, I didn't even realize the impact and the heartache it had made to my family and friends. Yeah. Until like even years later. Wow. Like I didn't understand like that my breakdown was that devastating to them as well mm. and so yeah it's one of those things that I feel as though the more I can talk about it and the more I can bring space to talking about mental health yeah then so be it like yeah there's probably many reasons why I went through that but if one of them is to say I'm hurting I'm broken I need help then great and Jamie Tchaikovsky two years after the breakdown invited me to the White House's first forum on mental health it was really? the first gathering ever that our nation's ever had wow and so to be a part of that and in a room of 300 individuals that have been working in the space for so long but because of our need as Americans and as Westerners to present a perfect image yeah we're so fearful of talking about what's going on in our heads Yeah, that yeah. it almost makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. I have a close friend who recently shared amongst a group of us that she had been suicidal and none of us had any idea. Mm. And it's so hard to realize how many people are 
putting up an exterior. She was one of the happiest, bubbliest people that I knew. And I think we're only recently starting as a culture to learn what it means to give permission to ask for help and talk about mental health and the very thing that you're talking about now. I saw so many psychologists, therapists, different medication, whatever, and all of it helped. But the one thing that helped and healed me more than anything was meeting my friend, who I now call my son, Rocky, mm-hmm. who from the moment I met him, he was so honest with me and his mm-hmm. pain that it healed me. Hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, you're willing to go there. Really? And then, yeah, it's the whole thing of me too. You have that? Yeah. I, I'm afraid of that or like yeah. I'm struggling with that. And it was just like, we're going to be okay. Wow. Because we're not alone. Wow. And like, I do want to say this with a large asterisk that I had a breakdown based off of a very unique phenomenon yeah. that came upon me and my brain and body. And so I'm not trying to like, diagnose or have you know one cure for everyone or anything like that I don't even know if I have pro tips but what I do know is we're all hurting somewhere Mm -hmm. and it's important for us to find someone else who's hurting Mm -hmm. in a similar way Mm -hmm. because that's going to heal you more than anything else Mm -hmm. it'll free you we talk all the time he lives in India but we talk almost Mm -hmm. every day wow yeah that's beautiful. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so talk to me about resilience mm. because you are probably one of the most resilient human beings I've ever met and what it's looked like for you in the years after all of this, what you're dreaming about, what you're working on, what you and your family have done. Fill us in on where your journey's taking you from there. It's hard to not bring up examples of that are extreme, mm. but... You know, you and I both have a similar background in terms of slavery and human mm-hmm. trafficking. And the conflict, the LRA, Joseph Coney, is a form of slavery. They're yeah. abducting children and girls for sex and the boys for child soldiers. And, and then I got to work with International Justice Mission and their work around slavery. And so for me, it's this notion of, Yes, you can get tired doing the work of justice, but the people who you're serving and you're partnering with, they're the most resilient people on the planet. Like they've literally had every single thing taken from them. Their bodies are used as a commodity. Yeah. And so I was in Uganda a couple months ago and I looked at Jolie and I go, I'm really tired. Like I feel like I'm still going and I'm still Mm. like doing it. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not tired. Hmm. I'm not tired, Jason. I have energy. Wow. And I looked at her and she's like, I serve these people. Like she's serving these children who have this thing called nodding syndrome, which basically makes them incapable of like eating and mobilization. They're like dying. There's like 10,000 of them. It's an effect of the war. It's a side effect. And no one knows what it is. They have doctors have been there. They have no idea. She's helping them and opening a center and she's doing it for free. She's just figuring it out. Wow. But I feel like if you stay close to the true narrative, which is like what Christians would call like the least of these or like Mm. the idea of like the most impoverished, you have the energy to be resilient, Hmm. to keep going. Hmm. Because like 
my breakdown, I was in a plush like place in Malibu or whatever that I got to yeah. rehabilitate. <laughs> I've been to the child soldier rehabilitation centers. They don't yeah. look like that. Yeah. So it's not a matter of comparing, but it is a matter of inspiration. Yeah. Like I get my inspiration from the lives and stories I've heard. Yeah. And they're so resilient. They're incredibly resilient. They have no reason to smile. They have no reason to keep going. And yet here they are and they're doing it. And mm. so that's what gives me a lot of strength. Obviously, like my wife, who's like, she's the warrior. She's, she's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And she also like one of the greatest gifts she's given me is to ensure that I don't take my life so seriously. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. babe, she's like, chill out. It's like <laughs> not that but like she kept saying to me on this trip we took like, you need to find a way to like do the work and also enjoy it. Like, mm. you, like life is allowed to be enjoyed, uh. you know? And like, that's so important when you have kids too. Yeah. You know, cause they're looking to you and they can feel the intensity or like the anxiety, Yeah, you know? And you're like, no, have fun. It's actually like important. Enjoy giving to serve others. Yeah. I mean, so one of my favorite things that you've done is just the way that you've incorporated your kids into your and Danica's activism and the way that you engage the world. And you had a book come out mm -hmm. last year that I'm obsessed with, A Little Radical. A Little Radical. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about A Little Radical and the ABCs of activism? As my time at Invisible Children was coming to an end, I thought like more than anything, I want to take the lessons that I've learned over the last decade and like put them into a very simple, a simple form. And there's nothing more simple, I think, than like a children's book, like a kid's art book. And so we kickstarted the project and a year and a half later we had the book and we used the book as a platform because we feel that in the world at large, but specifically in America right now, we need to come together around mm -hmm. a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, the, we wrote the book with the intention of like, what can we all agree on, right? And so we are coming out with a podcast in 2019 to give mm. families, but specifically parents, millennial parents, a way to talk about these issues with their kids. Oh, I love that. Because what I found and Danica found is like, in junior high, high school, even college, when we were going there back in the 90s and early 2000s, people weren't talking about these things. No, not, not at all. Why do we have to wait till you're 20 to find out about some yeah. of these harder issues? Right, right, right. Kids are actually really smart. Yeah. You can teach them things and <laughs> they'll start to get it. And, and sometimes better than we do. Totally. They have clarity of vision. They have like the magic totally. of like, why don't we just do this? My favorite Madeline Lingle quote, she says, write the book that needs to be written. And if yes. it's too complicated for adults, write it for children. I love that. And so that's basically the idea is creating a platform, a brand yeah. called A Little Radical. And it's the idea that okay, maybe you're not going to move to India and serve HIV AIDS orphans. Maybe you're not going to go work at the United Nations or these big ideals you think you have to do to change the world. Maybe you can't write a $100,000 check, but you could get a little radical, mm. just a little. Mm. And if all of us did a little, it would actually make a big difference. And mm. it's you know what we found with Invisible Children, which I think is true with what we're doing now with A Little Radical, is giving people the permission to just do it. Yeah. Everyone I know wants to do something. Yeah. They just need someone to say, do this. 
Yeah. Right, right, right. No, totally. We may just do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was one of the secrets or special sauce we had at Invisible Children was like, well, just do what you're good at. What's your talent? What's your passion? And you'd hear someone say, I don't have any. Mm. Well, I'm like, well, what do you do? I don't do anything. No, like literally what do you, and they're like, <laughs> I run. And they're like, great, run a race and donate the money to the, totally. I cook. Like, great, bake cookies and then sell them at your next thing. Like, yeah. And then people started to get it. They were yeah. like, oh, like activism can be just an extension totally. of what I'm already doing. Right. It, people get paralyzed in thinking I have to do a big thing or it doesn't count. Yeah. And no, it's just a little thing. Yeah. Yeah, being a part of a greater whole. And some of us, it's a big thing, yeah. but not everyone, you know? Yeah, and you just got back from a pretty long trip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> tell me, tell us where you were. When you're a parent and your kid is 10, approaching junior high, you realize, oh, this is actually decreasing, like our time together. Mm. And like, I'm already seeing him enter the junior high mindset where it's like all about friendships and it's great. But I was like, wait, this is a precious time. Yeah. So I was like, we're going to do everything we can. We didn't have the money. We didn't have like a big job or a paycheck or win the lottery or, you know, tech startup, whatever. But we figured out a way to get enough money to take our kids out of school, travel the United States first, because it's important to know like where you're from. Yeah. This is and our what country. the real country looks like. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the most fascinating places we went to was Welch, West Virginia. Yeah. So West Virginia is one of, if not the poorest state in the union. Welch is the poorest city inside the poorest state. Wow. I'm telling you, these stories are hard to hear. Wow. Yeah. And for my kids to be there and say, this is America, hmm. you know, so we got to do that. For so two cool. months. And then we got on a plane and we went to India. We went to five countries in Africa. We went to Thailand, Indonesia, and Japan. And so they kind of got to see, you know, everything from truly dollar a day poverty hmm. to Japan, which is kind of leading the world in some ways with technology. So they really, it changed all of us. And we just got back and we're already like kind of depressed culture shock whatever you want to call it <laughs> sorting it out and, but it'll all be in a podcast where you get to follow our journey oh wow and meet some of the activists and nonprofits and causes that we got to encounter to really bring the book that we made to life wow yeah and what's the podcast going to be called it's going to be called a little radical oh amazing the podcast amazing <laughs> yeah. okay simple, subscribing right? <laughs> yeah. love it but love yeah it. if you want to find out about our stuff the most active we're on Instagram is the Little Radical account. Okay. That's where we like post things. We're all on Instagram now, right? All on Instagram. <laughs> Come on. Love Instagram. Love Instagram. I can't wait to see everything that comes with Little Radical and everything else you do next. It's I'm standing by with bated breath. It's going to be so fun to see your next adventure. Well, I don't know if it's a poem or just a saying that Mary Oliver, the poet, yeah. when asked like whether we should do something or not do something, her answer to that is asking yourself a question is it good for the children hmm. that's it hmm. and so when you think about business politics like whatever you have to ask yourself is it good for the children and their children and their children like you have to think about it in that way oh. and so when you think about taking away you know these national parks 
not good for the children. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, probably want them there for the children. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I think that in that question comes such clarity of how we should move, you know, because yeah. we're so reactive and we're so like temporary in our decisions. Like, oh, today we'll make a profit. Perfect. Let's do it. It's like, mm. but is it good for the children? Hmm. You know, is this messaging good for the children? It's like, this conversation we're having like so that's where a little radical really came from hmm. that if young people can be taught to be brave and kind and creative i mean imagine what's going to come with gen z who are like 20 years and younger i mean that's the world that's a world changing <laughs> yeah. opportunity yeah so that's what we're about oh, i love it i can't wait Jason, you inspire me. You inspire me. Oh my gosh. Every time I talk to you, I'm like, can we work together? Yeah, we can. <laughs> okay, we great. definitely will. We yeah. definitely will. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Allie, that was really special. I think in hindsight, we sit the right person. <laughs> think, uh, yeah. That makes my day. <laughs> I think it was great and so Honestly, inspiring. Oh my gosh. It was, I think, the most inspiring interview I have ever, ever done. And I could have talked to him for hours. I was changed doing that interview. His ability to structure a narrative or look at a nuanced situation and say, here's what's really happening and frame the situation in, in such a way that everybody understands. Part of that skill, part of that's just training, part of that's just film school, but part of it is this genius that he just, you know, I hate to say that, he's but the genius savant. he just got born. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's a savant yeah, when it comes to this. Really but to is. combine that with the depth of character and integrity and humility. And work ethic. And work ethic. Yeah. He works his How many butt people off. end wars in Africa and are on the precipice of like winning an Oscar? I mean, it's, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, back to the theme that we opened the beginning of the show with, it's all about getting back up mm -hmm. and just saying, I'm still useful. I'm still very, very useful yeah. in the world. That's my new kick. Yeah. It's just be useful. Yeah. Like, just figure out how it can be useful for somebody today. And he's just so useful to so many people who he's helping them frame their reality in such a way that it makes sense. What an awesome interview. What a great episode. Yeah. Another good Loved one. Loved it. And you know, we failed a few times, but we got back up. We just put together a whole other. We got knocked down. Remember that episode where the three of us tried to explain the word algorithm and we just, we just got nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode, JJ and Allie create an algorithm. And it was like three, nine, yeah. five, and really nope. just didn't work. It didn't go anywhere. Didn't work, but we got back up. Next week, we have Ben Malcolmson. Talk about thinking like a winner. Yeah. Ben Malcolmson is the personal assistant and communication director for Pete Carroll, one of my favorite human beings on the planet, coach of the Seattle Seahawks before that, national championship coach of the USC Trojans. And Ben's the guy walking around, keeping them kind of on task, focused. And we asked the question, what's the difference between a way a winner thinks and the way a loser thinks. I know that sounds harsh, but you know some people do lose. And so we went at, what's the difference? How can we think more like winners think and less like losers think? We just cut to the chase yeah. in that episode. I want to play you a little clip of my conversation with Ben. I think you're going to find it fascinating. They say that grit is contagious, so I've, I've definitely caught the bug. It just rubs off on you. The more you surround yourself with gritty people, the more you become gritty and uh, it, it, it elevates. It's something that you just soak up. Um, I'm so fortunate to be around coach for all these years. 
he is the epitome of grit I and mean, all the things he's overcome. And he's lost an NCAA national championship to Vince Young with 19 seconds left. He's won an NCAA championship. He's won a Super Bowl. He's lost a Super Bowl on the one yard line. And here he is continuing just day after day, just nothing faces him. You know, it's just he, he's so resilient and so persevering. Ben's got a book out called Walk On. It's about his college experience, well, his life experience, and a bunch of that was at college. If you got a kid in college, get him the book Walk On. Yeah. Ben Malcolmson is his name. We don't get any money for selling these books. Yeah. And I know you guys are sick of it. He's like, Don, you're costing me a fortune. <laughs> yeah, buy you this, a book buy this, every get this. Time. <laughs> anyway, that's one more. You don't yeah. have to get it for yourself. Get it for whoever you know who's in college because yeah. it's it's, it'll inspire them. I can't wait till next week. Speaking of books, as long as you're buying Ben's book, go ahead and buy mine, Building a Story <laughs> Brand. <laughs> Another brilliant transition. transition. Yeah, wonderful so transition. Good. Yeah, it won uh, a Tony. It won it? an Emmy. Did it won it? an Oscar. It won a whatever the G is, a Grammy. A Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> it's got an EGOT. Is that what you're saying? It's got an, an EGOT. It's got an Don's EGOT. An EGOT. <laughs> I'm speaking positive affirmations. <laughs> you're hoping my life. in the future it will win. That's what right. if there was a story brand Broadway show based on the book? That would actually be amazing. Um, I'm on it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Clarify <laughs> your message. Let's clarify our message. So. Our business grows. Business grows. I, I like it. I do too. But for now, people can just buy the book. That's coming later. For now, they can get the book. Though. Building a Story Brand is the name of the book. If you're still even remotely interested after that pitch, <laughs> go get it. Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.